1: Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm your co-host, Mark Bigney, and with me, as always, is my loyal co-host, Mike Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. I'm very glad to hear that. Now, normally, we don't like to talk about issues of pronunciation here on this podcast. We've burned that bridge one too many times, but I would like to issue a minor correction. Last week, I referred to a non-existent game called Tiny Epic Mexican. I'd just like to stress that there is no such game. I, in fact, wanted to say that I had played Tiny Epic Mex once more. A listener requested that we add a brief pause at the end of every word, and that is being taken under consideration. However, I would like to note that there is a game that I think bears the title of Tiny Epic Mexican as a subtitle, that is Pax Perferiana, in the grand line of Tiny Epic Bankers, i.e. Pax Renaissance, and Tiny Epic Afghans, namely Pax Palmer 1st Edition. So, the game clearly exists... But I did not play that last week or, indeed, the week before that. We apologize very sincerely for the error and to all the fine people of Mexico. I am sorry.
2: So, Walker, it's Labor Day. It is Labor Day. Solidarity, brother. Solidarity. Is this something they celebrate in the United States? Yes. Oh, there you go. So everyone has a day off. I'm sure there's many games being played. It's going to be great. So... We talk about board games here on this podcast, we are going to
1: be talking about the game we reviewed last year in the as-yet-unnamed retrospective intro segment, the Eurus. we're going to talk about the games we played last week, we're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter, and this week our topic is card-driven games. We don't have a feature game for review, more on that later in the news,
2: hold your breath, wait it, for it. Uh, card-driven games, aka, let's give Mark another reason to talk about El Grande, like we need one. I haven't talked about El Grande in a long time. Yeah, at least... By, like, last episode. Or, as El Grande has known, large epic Mexican. So, Mark, this time last year, we reviewed the greatest game of all time. Well, let's not... It's, it's the, the only, only game that matters. It is the only game that matters. I don't know about greatest game of all time, but... <laughs> one of the greatest dexterity games of all time. Oh, it's certainly one of the most innovative dexterity games ever, that's One of for the sure. most thematic dexterity games of all time. Absolutely. Seal Team Flicks. It is, a t- it is a game where it's a karaoke style. You get your squad together and you infiltrate subway stations or airports. I'm or sorry, I'm sorry. Karaoke style? Sorry, oh Oh, okay. <laughs> Did I say karaoke? I believe. We're going to, go back to the t- we're gonna have
1: to go back to the tape. <laughs> but I believe you said karaoke style. That would be amazing. Well, now we have more expansion ideas. I was about to say... <laughs> coming out next
2: (laughs) karaoke seal anyway that being said crokinoe style where you get you're shooting guns you're going around corners you're taking cover behind crates you're blowing crates through the terrace it's a great little thematic crokinoe style dexterity game for my money, it is the
1: best stealth implementation I've ever seen in a board game. There are still, as we comment in the reviews, there are these persistent rules questions that tend to pop up for new players. We worked through them, and we were able to appreciate the game as we think it's meant to be played. Maybe someday we... Uh, I, I've tried to participate in the fora here and there about correcting minor ambiguities or questions that people have, because there's a recurring set of confusions people have, and which is a shame, because it's a marvelous, marvelous game, and the systems are actually extremely clear. Clean once you get them well, that's what up, we talked about the down.
2: other day was the fact that when you have a dexterity game like this, that it should be bone simple. You don't want to pile on a bunch of overhead rules. And I think they've got a nice balance in SEAL Team Flicks where it's just enough that you're moving the guys around and then your dexterity part of the game. I've had a lot of success playing Seal Team Flicks with a lot of the
1: core audience for Dexterity Games. I pull out Dexterity Games for small children who want to who want to participate in a game, and I've actually had success playing with uh, 10, 11, 12-year-olds in Seal Team Flicks because if someone else is managing the AI, and you can just tell them, hey, kick that door down and hit everybody on the other side. That's definitely something within the cognitive capabilities of, of many children. So if they're old enough to appreciate, if they're old enough to be subjected to this sort of tongue-in-cheek small arms action, then Seal Team Flicks is marvelous. You just need someone running the rules. So you get the benefit of additional grit and detail and texture from the rule systems, but you still get to flick things. It's not perfect as far as co-ops go it's got player elimination sometimes there are wasted actions i would have liked to have had some sort of outlet for that but all told marvelous game still pull it out on the reg the only thing that keeps it from my playing it more is it's a little bit difficult to transport because it's a large box in the box you can't put too much weight on the top because then you'll crush the
2: beautiful maps with those lovely walls ridiculously beautiful maps
1: And it's such, apparently it's available for insanely small quantity of dollars now. Yeah, yeah. Given the quality of components and the the boards have to be seen to be believed in terms of their quality and detail. And we have no
2: hidden agenda as to why you should buy your copy now. Has nothing to do with them, you know, putting out an expansion as long as they sell more copies. I'm sure it has nothing to do with that. Buy your copy now.
1: Nothing whatsoever. Your
2: conspiracy theories have no place here, Walker. And that is the game we reviewed last year, SEAL Team Flicks by WizKids. Now on to the games we played this week. Mark, what have you, what did you play this week? played a game called Kobayakawa. This is a small box, ostensibly
1: Japanese uh, game. It was designed by a man by the name of Jun Sasaki, so I'm willing to believe that. But it was republished by Yellow. This is a very, 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 very simple gambling game where there's a deck of cards from 1 to 15. And at the end of the round, you either have to have the highest hole card or... If you have the lowest card, you will add the value of a face-up card to that. So, for example, if I'm sitting on the 12, I might think I'm doing pretty well. But if somebody else has got, say, a 4 and that's the lowest around the table and the face-up card is a 9, well, they've got 13 and they beat me. And there's a little more to it than that, but at the end of the day, that's basically what you're doing. At the end of a round, after some mild card manipulations going on, you have to decide whether you want to bid and figure you're going all in. There's a lot of randomness, as you might imagine, because you have one crack at modifying your hand, and the thing that irks me the most, honestly, although irk is too strong a word for a game of this effervescence, it's really, really quick and simple, is that the last round, all the payouts are doubled, and it is, I mathed it out, I've only played it the one time, but having mathed it out, it seems very implausible to me that anyone could be in a situation where they could be winning to an extent that they can afford to lose the last round. So basically, it's determined by the last round. It's one of those games where the scoring systems are tinkered a bit, so it's effectively a rubber banding exercise. And if you win the last round, you win, more or less. And that's okay. It's fine. It's a 5-10 to minute filler. Uh, There are better 5-10 to minute fillers if you want a bluffing betting game of that sort you have better options available but it's not offensive and that was my experience with Kobayakawa
2: we got to play Black Angel it's one of the newest games out that's getting pretty good buzz around it's by Pearl Games you're this big mothership you know plodding along through space trying to get back to its homeworld. Is it trying to get back, or is it trying to find a new homeworld? Find a new homeworld. It's it's out there. It's trying to find a new homeworld to colonize. It is traveling through space. As you can see, I'm having I'm having trouble with the theme just because it was a little a little thin. More on this later, I'm sure. But it's a it's a Euro engine building game. You're out putting out engines in space. You're building a little circuit board. You're having robots, you know, rushing around the, the ship, giving you more actions and more dice, and and overall. We only played it once, or I've only played it once, and I definitely want to try it again. It seems like a very interesting uh, wh- you know, twist on an engine builder. I've played it a couple times now, and I
1: commented on this on Twitter. It's been a while since I've played a game and had... Nothing even close to a preliminary impression yet after a couple of plays. I think I'm going to need to come back to this at least a few times. We're going to get it played a few more times over the course of a couple weeks so I can try to figure out anything to say about it. It's really confounded me, not because it's too complicated, but I think because it's so open in a strange way. Without going into too much detail, it's one of those games where there's not a whole lot of default ways to get points. It's pretty much all up to you to make your own way in the world, victory-wise. And I think that's part of what's throwing me for a loop. So, not much to say at the moment. I'm cautiously optimistic. I'm definitely intrigued. I don't know where I'm going to end up on my opinions of Black Angel, but we'll definitely be reporting back with more impressions sometime soon. Played more of Human Punishment, Social Deduction 2.0, because as I mentioned last time, not just according to the art evaluation of grade school boys, but also by virtue of the experiences of some of the other players, they wanted to see it again. And sure enough, we did. And I have to say... My initial impressions of it as basically a take that game with a veneer of something else tacked on top of it is definitely being worn out because we had a play state that was borderline degenerate. What happened was one of the player's special powers was nobody other than you can draw take that cards, which was weird. And then immediately after revealing this ability, he played a card that forced everyone else to discard all their hands. So what happened was we had an artificial situation where the take that environment was entirely stripped away. Now, this player was subsequently murdered very soon thereafter. I mean, in the game. I don't actually, well, I mean, I I mean, sure, I stabbed him in the throat, but I swear it was in self-defense. And his power persisted. This wasn't, uh, most of the time when you're dead, you're out of the game. But the specific power says nobody gets to draw cards anymore forever. And the rest of the game, therefore, played out with just the core mechanisms of the game. And it was not enjoyable at all. It was it was reasonably straightforward and quick, but one could just sit there and game out what was happening. Now, sure enough... The I'm not too worried about this ability being overpowered because merely by triggering it, we
2: killed him in a fit of rage because we
1: didn't want right. How dare you do this to the game state? You're out. You and see, then you
2: know, in little brackets at the bottom, it should be say, and paint a bullseye
1: on your head. Precisely. Not that, again, not that we even benefited our own situation as, as a consequence, we just did it purely out of spite. So that part was amusing. And then what we did was we had a very plodding experience of, okay, I do this to you, you do this to me, whatever. I have no defenses available because everything's face-up and available. And it really did feel a lot like Bloodbound, but not much fun. And Bloodbound is one of my favorite social deduction games, and it's very similar to Human Punishment in that you inflict violence on people so as to get more information.
2: Does that have really bad art like Bloodborne? No?
1: No, the art in Human Punishment, as any seven-year-old boy will tell you, is very cool. Gotcha. There's a lot of interesting visual flourishes there. The whole sort of post-apocalyptic humans versus machines vibe is carried out very, very well and very strikingly. Bloodbound's legendarily bad art in the previous printing. Fantasy yeah,
2: Flight. Yeah, first first edition. I want to make sure
1: I'm very specific. The here. new edition completely neutered the appeal by replacing it with somewhat more generic fantasy art, but the terrible, terrible cosplay is part of the charm. At any rate, this made me want to get Bloodbound back to the table again because of the superficial similarities. And I think the Bloodbound is, is actually a far more nuanced and enjoyable experience. And as I said, previously as well as a take that game i don't find human punishment that particularly satisfying just by virtue of the tremendously wild nature of the effect if i wanted to play cosmic encounter i'd play cosmic encounter but human punishment is kind of like not doesn't have quite the satisfying chaos of a cosmic encounter nor does it have the interesting inferences of something like a blood bound nor does it have the tight logic puzzle of something like the resistance so i really don't Speaking personally, for my own taste, I don't really see where it fits. So I think personally, um, I'm done with Human Punishment. That's where I've that's where I've settled up. Some other people really seem to enjoy it, so maybe I'll play it more then. And if so, maybe I'll complain about it. But <laughs> as it is, that's my r- settled opinion on Human Punishment Social Deduction 2.0. All
2: right, I got to play the Teotihuacan expansion. It's one of these expansions that has a whole bunch of modules that you can throw in one or two or all of them at once. We played with practically all of them. We just took out. A couple just before we started, just because I thought everyone had played before, but there was a new player. So for time reasons, I decided to take out some parts. And the parts I took out, it, uh, Teotihuacan has tracks, much like Gaia Project or Terra Mystica. You're moving you know, your worshippers up this track, and it gets you bonuses. So there's another color of track that you can move up. But this one's slightly different, where you put your tokens on like the technologies, and you get overall benefits all the time. So a lot of these expansions give you uh benefits that break the rules so everyone's dealt out uh id cards at the beginning there's quite a few i was surprised by how many came with the game so everyone gets two, pick one it's more like move move more get more resources you know do stuff like things that will break the rules they seem very subtle yeah very subtle same thing with another thing you there's a another deck of tiles and you're going to draw three out because there's three turns in the game and it's yet another one that everyone gets a benefit so i don't like those global,
1: global modifier global for, for run.
2: so i, I don't Usually I don't like those expansions very much because it's just the same for everybody. So it's just sort of and it's in the ones since we forgot to turn over for the first time, we didn't (laughs) want to we wanted to include it but we decided well we're going to turn them up to see what it would have done so it was like the same sort of thing everyone gets to move and sort of like kneecaps some of the unique special abilities because it gives it to everybody type thing so
1: oh I see the interaction between the global effects and the player specific effects sometimes yeah, Sometimes oh, it makes, yeah. but
2: sometimes the wording is, is, is well done where it said because the the ID one said you get plus one movement so if the global thing was, ah. was extra movement then you got to move even more well so it was all good and then a lot of them the key element to this expansion is the fact that in the game there's a lot of the spaces that have two effects you're going to take the main action which is probably get resources or you know do something or you can lock your die because you're using your dice as your workers and a lot of the games that we played we sort of realized that locking your die is not usually a good move or really handicaps you or kneecaps you however you want to word it and they introduced the spaces that unlock your dice so Ah. they've taken out uh So it's mostly to do with the building spaces. So the, you know, building the temple or building the steps, if you do it with enough dice, then you can also unlock dice. So it really emphasizes you locking your dice more and then, you know, opens up a whole other part of the game, you know, where getting those, uh, the gray tokens, you know, as advantage, you know, you can take the top part of the locking your dice, which is moving up the tracks or the bottom, which is taking the tokens. And say you have one of the victory conditions is having a bunch of the gray tokens, then, you know, it really, you know... Let's you do that, or getting the masks, right? Because you don't normally get the masks because you don't want the tokens. But anyway, long story short, I think they did a fantastic job. The quality is great. The matching of the colors and the palette all worked out great. So that's the Teotihuacan expansion.
1: Yeah, this it's called the late pre-classic period. Yes. <sighs> as far as compelling titles go, I got to say that doesn't do much
2: for me. There is a slight oddness like everyone has these discs that you use for technologies the one they came with were a slightly different size but i think you're supposed to use them for a different part of the board just so you know that they're different but it was odd that they used a different size and they replaced all the all the discs that you used for the tracks with little worshippers, and i thought that was fantastic as well
1: I'm looking forward to trying these because the way you describe it, it certainly sounds like it would kind of address some of the things I didn't like all that much about Teotihuacan. I'm a fan of Teotihuacan, but I felt that like many contemporary Euro designs, like tracks and 50 million different types of tokens, and it wasn't necessarily as integrated an experience as I like. And anything, if this is a second draft where they try to make sure that things piece together a little bit better. It's going to increase the complexity, but I don't really mind complexity so long as it all hangs together well and it feels editorial and it feels cohesive. And so if it really pays those kinds of dividends, that sounds like something I could really encourage me to go back to Teotihuacan to walk in a lot more.
2: Yeah, I think so. I think they really listen to the people that played it and like when you get a game and you even if you play it thousands of times when you're trying to design it or stream it down, it just doesn't compare to like the millions of times, you know, once you put the game out and you know the huge cycle it goes through. And because you know you have groupthink, you know this is how you group, this is how your group plays, and then you know you're sort of teaching a game a certain way, so people are going to play it a certain way. So you just don't know how you know things are going to work out. And then once it gets out to the public, you know things change, and they really address some of the issues that I had as well.
1: Great. Late pre. I mean, I'm sure late pre-classic period means something to archaeologists or people who know something about that. But I mean, geez. Well, at
2: least they named it something. Like I was. I've been looking through some expansions and just said, you know, the the Warcraft expansion box. I'd and be... like really you couldn't just like throw a name on there? You could just call it the 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 Warcraft expansion. Well, thanks.
1: thanks for I that. don't know. The, the the Teotihuacan, the Teotihuacan expansion I think would be a, a perfectly fine expansion name.
2: And I think they do aren't they doing that through through the ages? It's just called the Through the Ages expansion. <laughs> anyway, one that just it, came out it was just like Leaders and Wonders, yeah. I think. Oh, they they did put a name on it. Well, yeah. that's something played Import Export. Now last time I
1: talked about Import Export and I dared to suggest that I preferred many of the structural elements of Glory to Rome upon which Import Export is clearly a knockoff, I was informed by many people and many listeners who had never played Glory to Rome that they were sure that Import Export was better. I appreciate the input. I stand by my opinion. So, import-export, in comparison to Glory to Rome, has a whole bunch of contexts in which your actions aren't going to be very successful. Now, I mentioned one of them last time. If you don't have a boat back, it can be laborious to get your boat back. And the internet responded with one voice and told me to get good. But it's the case that the throughput concerns in import-export are always narrower and less flexible than they are in Glory to Rome. For example, when it comes time for you to complete an order which is the equivalent of building a building in glory to rome first you have to do a specific role to get a specific card onto a specific ship both all of which you need to have you need the card to trigger the action you need the card that you want to start fulfilling and you need the boat present if any of those are missing well you just can't do it flat so better go back to the drawing board and then what you need to do is do one of two specific actions to contribute towards completing that Now, if the specific card that you want isn't in your hand or available on the table, again, back to the drawing board, gotta do something else. Glory to Rome, on the other hand, their building actions, of which there are two, they differ only in the manner in which you can contribute cards to an ongoing building. But, if you don't have the card to contribute, or if the card isn't available, you can start building something else. Because all the build actions are consolidated as either start a building or contribute towards an existing building. And so you have a certain degree of flexibility there, especially since building buildings that you don't intend to complete is a strategic consideration to control tempo and other matters of the game. That is just one example in which Glory to Rome had a certain degree of flexibility to accommodate for the card draw, because everything, as we're going to talk about later in our topic, is driven by the cards that are available to you. Furthermore, in Glory to Rome, when you draw cards, you can draw a Jack, which is a wild card, which says, I can play or follow any role, as opposed to Import-Export, which does not have that feature. Instead, you have to use the multiple cards of the same suit to lead or follow any role, which also Glory to Rome had. Anyway... I don't mean to keep harping on about the, the similarities between Import-Export and Glory to Rome, but they are so overwhelmingly similar in terms of structure. Sorry, let me scratch that. They're identical in terms of turn structure. Completely identical in terms of the fundamental issue of playing, playing a role and following it. And the way that card throughput works, I just vastly enjoy more in Glory to Rome. I also enjoy the card effects in Glory to Rome more, although they're, they're a little more wild and crazy. I like the dy- the dynamism of controlling game length. I like the subtle elements of how cards go through the pool as opposed to import export, which involves a lot of, you know, reshuffling a discard pile and has a weird game in condition with respect to the deck being exhausted. But the deck exhaustion can just be a function of where the deck, how the cards are being tied up anyhow. Import export isn't by any means bad. It just reminded me that it's such a shame that Glory to Rome isn't in print. And let's not touch on that because it's a huge story in and of itself. Strange coincidence while we were playing import export at the table behind us. Other people were playing Innovation, Carl Chuddock's other great ta- uh, tableau builder. And I say other, implying that there's only two. He has many. It's what he does. He makes tableau builders. And I would much rather play Innovation. I'd much rather play Glory to Rome. I'd much rather play any of Chuddeck's tableau builders really than import-export. Primarily because, and this is only half the game's fault, it is so similar to a better game that I just feel frustrated at the differences. But then again, I don't know what I'm talking about. So that was import-export. Finally, it was another good week for Miniatures Games. I got to play another game of Rangers of Shadow Deep, which continues to be a very, very, very rules-light but narratively satisfying experience. Just enough texture to keep me going, so we're probably going to be continuing our Rangers of Shadow Deep campaign. Word to the wise, if you're like me and you don't like crafting, play Rangers of Shadow Deep with someone who does. The person I'm playing with puts out these marvelous displays and reads what what you need to do in the scenario and constructs a great-looking terrain. And so we have these lovely boards to deal with. And he's like, ooh, I can build that. And he comes up with marvelous, marvelous stuff that I never would. I'd be like, uh, I got some construction paper. All right, great. The only time I ever contributed anything was when they needed a river and about... 15 years ago, I bought a cheap plastic river for miniatures gaming, and so that, that's that been about my sum and total contribution to the terrain aspects of Ranges of Shadow Deep. But I think I'm now actually at the point where I'm going to go to Hero Forge and buy a custom mini for my ranger. I think we're at that point. I've I've started to the, the the true sign of a good narrative experience. I've started to have headcanon. I've started to sort of flesh out the narrative bits about what's happening and why. And that's an indication that there's enough there that they've that they've got something special and they've tapped into something. So the rules remain Very, very simple, sometimes unsatisfyingly so. My hero got two-shotted in the first round of the game and got knocked out for the rest of the scenario, so I had to just have my hired hands uh, mop up, and that can happen. It's a D20-based system and wild results can occur, but that's okay. So that's been my continuing experience with Rangers of Shadow Deep. It still gets my recommendation. Played another game of Horizon Wars, and very much like I've been complaining about before, my my issues with Horizon Wars are really coming to the front. I adore the army building and the combat resolution mechanisms of Horizon Wars. I think they're fabulous. I have yet to find a satisfying way to play. We've played three times now, once with a scenario that was weird, and twice with the so-called adventure system, which is kind of a build-your-own scenario, that was updated in a recent supplement called Over the Horizon, and even the updated version, it's kind of weird. It just it doesn't lead to what feels like a good scenario. There are structural imbalances, kind of like the way random bonuses can interact in, in the Teotihuacan expansion. You know, those are the kinds of things that can happen. Sometimes you can have a build-your-own-scenario system where all the pieces fit together, and you're like, great leads to great variety. We have that experience, for example, in Battle Lore. In Battle Lore, you have different deployment cards and they interact to form the scenario, and I've yet to have a particularly degenerate experience with that. But in Horizon Wars, it seems a little bit fragile, and it's one of those miniatures games which, which again, is frequently peppered with, well, you know, if things don't seem to be working out properly, just fudge it and you'll get your way through, and that's fine, and that's definitely a perspective very common in tabletop miniatures wargaming. I would like a little bit more smoothness and detail and polish in terms of getting a, a playable balanced, entertaining, engaging scenario. So it's, it's just one of those things where as I'm going through the motions and doing the things with my giant stompy max and horizon wars, everything is great. And the attacks are resolving quickly and all the different perks are great. And then you start looking at the victory conditions like, wait, this is weird. And that's an awkward place to be. So I'm going to sit down. I'm going to take a careful look at the remaining scenarios. I'm going to try to cherry pick one that I think will work out well and we'll see if we can get that to work because everyone who's played the system loves the system and then says, eh, the scenario seems a bit strange. So we'll see if we can, we can salvage that. But it is definitely a sufficiently compelling system that I recommend at least giving it a shot. And that's Horizon Wars.
2: And those are the games we played this week. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. We've got some podcast news that we're going to talk about at the end of the topic just so we keep everything board game related. There is a The Suspense is killing me, Walker. I'm sorry, I just I just thought right anyway. There is a game called Evil Dead 2, Mark. It is on Kickstarter there's already been an Evil Dead 2 on Kickstarter and it didn't fulfill and everyone paid their money and didn't get anything. There is this company called Jasco Games. They have decided that if they hit their funding goal, then all of the people that gave money for the first Kickstarter will also get one of these games. And I just thought I had to bring that up because I, that was a fantastic thing that everyone will get to play this new Evil Dead 2 game. So those People will not be out money. They have not hit their goal yet, but it's awfully high for this particular product.
1: So let's hope that they do. Are they going to give me a copy of Upfront and my remaining Macross miniatures?
2: No. Oh, that's too bad. Are they going to give me my uh, Lazy Susan gaming table? I don't think so. That was an oucher. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I got the
1: same message. I, I don't know how, but I'm on Jasco's mailing list, and they sent me that email about how they were going to be making everyone whole, and I applaud them. I think that's fabulous. This has happened a couple times where either a company or an individual has come in and said, look – we are going to rescue this failed Kickstarter and, and make good on all these people that gave us zero dollars. We don't want these people to be left out, nor do we want this product or this product line to be tainted with association of all these uh, unfortunate consequences. I say good on them. That's fabulous. Anybody even remotely interested should go and support
2: Jasco Games, because that's a that's a on, very fine and honorable deed. And yeah, they've got some decent Kickstarter projects that did fun. They did the Street Fighter board game. They did Mega Man board game. They did the Mega Man Pixel game. So All the products look good so far, and let's hope they uh, come through.
1: Well, I haven't fulfilled yet on the uh, Street Fighter's miniature game, so time will tell. Time will tell. The International Gamers Awards... Nominations have been put out. The IGA has increasingly been stepping into the kind of void for what we might call strategy gamers ever since the Spiel des Jahres and even the Kenner Spiel have been moving towards lighter family fare. And I took a look and, and the approach of the IGA has been to nominate a very, very long, large, long list of games. But overall, the nomination seems solid. There's a lot of great stuff in there. They've nominated Root. They've nominated Gugong, Teotihuacan, Rez Just One. Just One doesn't necessarily fit in that same list, but whatever. It's a great game. So more power to them, I guess. Although it seems strange for me to complain about the SDJ and then talk about the IGA nominating the same game that won it. But anyway, I get to be hypocritical. I'm like that. That having been said, they've also nominated Wingspan, Coimbra, and Architect of the West Kingdom. So, I mean, nobody can be right all the time. Uh, but- Cough. <laughs> I've said it before, and I'll say it again. 15, 20 years ago, the SDJ was something that I paid a lot more attention to than I do now. For me now, mostly, it's the Deutsche Spielpreis and the IGA nominations that I think have a little bit of clout. And we said that Root was the game of the year 2018, so maybe they'll agree with us.
2: Let's hope. And that's the news, and why it doesn't matter. Now, on to our topic, which is card-driven games. Now, what do we mean by card-driven games? What I mean by card-driven games is... A board game where the one of the fundamental, not main, but one of the fundamental mechanisms is a deck of cards that gets drawn up throughout the game, but is not the only mechanism. It's not, and the and the components of the game is not just cards. So it's not a card game per se, but it is driven by a deck of cards.
1: This is one of those areas where definitions can get very tricky and thorny, and we're going to try to be as transparent as we can about what we're talking about as we're talking about them, but this is one of those areas where you can really give a hardcore consum wargamer apoplexy by talking about things like card-driven games, because it means something very, very specific in the war game arena, and i just like to spend a couple se- seconds talking about that, because the seminal design We the People was invented what was known at the time as the card-driven war game, although even in the context of war games, that definition's gotten a little bit sloppier. And this is uh, a design pedigree that includes the subsequent for the people, Hannibal Rome versus Carthage, which is probably the most well-known of that, uh, Twilight Struggle more recently, and these are systems whereby you have multi-use cards, and you play a card to either generate an event or generate some number of ops points, and this has kind of been played with in a number of other ways. There are some games that are similar in the 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 consum genre, like Upfront or Combat Commander. But surely the way to uh generate a a a furious reaction on the part of a wargamer is to call something like Battle lore a card driven war game. Which, you know, in terms of semantic composition it surely is. It's a card driven game where there is war, but, you know, so, we're not just talking about the card driven war games, obviously. I should also note the best card driven war game of all time, which is Successor's Third Edition, which is now available in a reprint. But anyway.
2: So, on this note, I'm going to argue that the top five games on the BGG board game list are all card driven games. Oh, boy. Okay, go ahead. Twilight Struggle. Yes, no question. Gloomhaven.
1: Yeah, sure. Pandemic. So here here's an area of, of of difference though for me, what I think is most useful for the category. I agree with you that in a very real sense the the momentum of the game is driven by a deck of cards. But Player actions are not driven by a deck of cards. That is true. To me, the, the important distinction, and this is this is just just for me, I'm not going to argue that this is the best taxonomy or anything, but I think the most useful way to talk about card-driven games are where players' actions are pract- almost exclusively driven by cards that they either play or invoke. And there's a certain amount of that in Pandemic, but not a whole lot. So the AI of the game, the opposition of the game, is driven by cards
2: absolutely, but in terms of player agency, not so much. Terraforming Mars. Legit. Legit. And Star Wars Rebellion? Haven't played. It is it is a card-driven game. It, I'm going to have to take your word for it. It's me. much like uh, what I was going to talk about, uh, like, sort of like Concord... Oh, wow. When I say a game is like another game, it's not how other people say it. But. It's like, well, you know, it has the same font. Yeah, well, yeah. Well, and <laughs> in, in what I'm saying is, like, you're sort of building your hand of cards. And that's what you do in Star Wars Rebellion. There's cards out there. You run on missions, and you're trying to build your deck up so it's more useful. So, and all your actions are are based on these cards. And the last one is through the ages.
1: Yeah, well, through the ages, you spend a lot of time manipulating things. And well, I guess through the ages and 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 uh, terraforming Mars are kind of an interesting test case, right? Because again, a lot of it is driven by the cards, but you spend a lot of actions just playing things around on. The, well, let me give you an example. All right. One of the things that I don't like about Upfront and also Combat Commander, these are two games that are primarily card-driven, but there is a very small number of actions you do that do not require a card play. Contrast this to a Commands and Colors game. In a Commands and Colors game, with very vanishingly rare exceptions in some some of the historical modules, you can't do anything unless a card allows you to, right? To activate a unit, the card needs to say you can, and then certain things follow from that. But everything is driven from the cards. In Upfront and Combat Commander, there's a very small list of things you can do that is not driven by a card play. And those rules exceptions are some of the most thorny problems in the game systems as a result. Because one of the benefits of card-driven games is you get to have a certain purity in the action selection by virtue of the fact that everything is being driven by the cards. Now, the cards can be multi-use, and we love multi-use cards. And so I'm not, I, I don't know where, again, this is just me being pedantic in terms of my own uh, taxonomy. I would agree that it is, it is reasonable to describe both Terraforming Mars and Through the Ages as card-driven. But you spend a lot of time doing actions just manipulating resources that are on cards that you've already played. And so to me, that feels like on a spectrum of card-driven a little bit further afield. But I absolutely take your point, and that is a very interesting observation that the, the top five games are all by some metric, or, um, some reasonable metric or another card-driven.
2: Right now I have a whole bunch of points that I feel is a why card-driven games benefit. Are you ready? I am ready. So we have a randomness, right? We talked about Pandemic. So every game is going to be different because you have all these decks of cards that are shuffled and so they come up in different orders. So it's a great way to make a game random or different every time.
1: Yeah, it's a great way to make sure that the structure of the game will vary from game to game, not necessarily in a degenerate random way, but in an
2: interesting way in terms of varying the pace. And then there's... I think after writing all this stuff out, I think this is one of the biggest one. It's the anticipation, right? Which is huge in Twilight Struggle. Once you get to know these decks and in the Quartermaster General series that we're going to talk about later, knowing which cards are coming up, the anticipation of waiting, of knowing your opponent's going to get this card soon, getting a defense ready, knowing what's going to come up, knowing the decks and being prepared for it. So this is another advantage to deck driven games. I actually think that this is one of
1: the biggest downsides of card driven games because in some card driven games you absolutely have to know about some cards in the deck. We talked about this in terms of having to know the deck in, in other games. I, I I think it's actually a downside in terms of
2: accessibility and in terms of how it like Well, uh, sure for like learning the game and accessibility 100% that's a huge down point, but if it's a game that you play a lot, I think it's a huge uh, like A great part of the game.
1: Well, uh, let's compare two different kinds of situations. So, there's. So, let's talk about Twilight Struggle, for example. In Twilight Struggle, in the first era, you, as the American player, need to know not to go into Egypt, not to go into Cuba, because there are specific cards that basically say, Remove all U.S. influence there, and the Soviets get a whole bunch of influence. And I'm not disputing the legitimacy of this as a game effect, but I don't find it particularly interesting or compelling to spring this on an unsuspecting player, nor do I find it particularly interesting and compelling to, as an experienced player, wait for that card to come up and then be able to proceed with any other plans I have in Cuba and Egypt. Compare that, on the other hand, to another thing in Twilight Struggle, the scoring cards. The scoring cards are simple enough and pared down enough that you can say, sit down to a new player or an experienced player and say, look, Europe is going to score in the first go-around. South America isn't. And that, again, helps control the pacing and it helps control the evolution of the game state. And that is something you can look for. It's like, when is the scoring event going to come up? How long am I going to sink resources into this
2: place until it's scored? So I think sometimes it can be good and sometimes it can be bad. Combos can be created. Many games, like Magic the Gathering, although that's a card game, but, I mean, that type of combos where cards interact with each other because some of them have so many varied, you know, effects. You can get a handout and get really interesting combos off and combos that you don't normally think of, like we talked about in many games before where people play so differently. It's That's one of the most interesting parts about games where you see people use components or combos that you've never seen before because you just didn't think how to use them in that way. So the primary benefit,
1: and again... I. In many ways, I'm a wargamer at heart, and so I think back to, to the evolution of card-driven wargames. And the reason why card-driven wargames were such a revelation in the field is because you get to have so much detail and so much variability and so many specific historical events without overburdening the game system itself, because you put them all into cards. So, normally... In a game without a deck of cards, and you want 120 different available events to be possible effects in the game, it's a nightmare of tables and charts and cross-referencing and bounded exceptions and so forth. On the other hand, if you have a deck of cards that are somehow managed in a reasonable way, it is trivial to have 100... well... It is comparatively trivial to have 120 unique effects happening over the course of the game. And so that's why you can have these major, important, either historical events or specific gameplay events that can be buried on cards, and the rules overhead can be negligible if the cards are written properly. And that is the beauty of a good card-driven game. It also can be the beauty of a good card game, but the added benefit of a card-driven game is you can have a stable overall tactical and strategic horizon defined by of the board and the board pieces that is then m- manipulated and improved and enhanced. By these card effects and when those things start to come together and really sing that is absolutely a joy to behold and that's one of the things that i absolutely adore about both the card-driven war games and other more substantial board games with card-driven effects like the difference between a game like el grande and something like hansa teutonica i'm not dissing either game here now walker calm down well, I,
2: just, I was wondering how long was it was going to take you to bring up el grande but i love it el grande like it's,
1: it's a classic it is an absolutely brilliant game In Hansa Teutonica, you don't have special effects, generally speaking. It's a fabulous game, but it's relatively straightforward. And the the action universe, and one of the reasons in what? which the game is so good is the universe of available actions is very tightly constrained el grande on the other hand not that they're very similar otherwise hans tonica is not an area majority game but just as an example of a euro game with a tightly constrained action uh, universe of available actions el grande has a huge available universe
2: of available actions and because it benefits so much from being card driven that sort of segues into the, my next point it's having a, a- deck-driven game makes it very easy to introduce expansions because you just can increase cards into those decks and usually, you know, with no problem, you know, minus, you know, the colored backs, you know, matching the colors (laughs) and all of that headache. But other than that, it's usually very easy just to, you know, inject extra cards into those decks and make a whole new expansion for your game.
1: Often that is true. Sometimes, though, it leads to some problems, and this is actually what I was, I was again reflecting on the Quartermaster General series, because the bane of any card-driven game is when it becomes unclear when you're allowed to play something. Can I play this now? Oh, I'm going to play this card. No, sorry, you had to do that two turns ago, etc., etc. I've complained about this a number of times. I keep meaning to put uh, to try Elo Darkness again, which is the card-driven MOBA-type game. I've only played it the one time with the wrong rules, but it, it really ran afoul of that. It was unclear when you get to play cards what. And if you take a look at the evolution of a game like Quartermaster General, the original one, the World War II one, it started out with a very, very constrained set of card types, and each expansion has played with that a little bit. And each version has modified that a little bit, at least the other versions though, were self-contained. And so what you started off with was a very, very, very simple game where the board laid out the strategic horizons and all the special effects were buried into cards that were very straightforward. But as you multiply the type of cards, as you start introducing other types of effects that are not different types of events, but different types of cards themselves then you start getting into confusion about how I use this card. And that type of confusion is not one that I enjoy. And that's one of the reasons why I'm looking forward to seeing what they do with the new version of the base game of Quartermaster General. I'm looking to see if I can streamline this down and get everything consolidated again so to get rid of this confusion.
2: So this point, I found interesting when I was thinking about it. I'm wondering if... Uh, designers use decks of cards because in a game where there's lots of conflict or multiple sides, I wonder if it's an easy way to form balance, right? Because you can, like I said, interject cards, you can like just sort of add more cards or tweak cards and it sort of lets you a very easy way to like slightly skew the balance towards other sides or other players that it won't, you know, completely undermine the game. I don't know how easy it is. I think it requires extensive testing. No, well, I don't mean it's to... easy to actually do... I mean, but having use, putting it into a deck of cards is easier than it would be if you didn't have that deck at all. If you had to like, introduce a complete new ah. rule or a new component to do it, having a deck of cards where you can just add a card or tweak the card slightly, I think it's a lot easier to do it that way than it would be other ways.
1: Absolutely. that That is probably true. But the that is one of those tasks of a game designer or a game developer more often... That I think that I I can imagine as being nightmarishly horrible. Like I read designers notes about people spending design iterations just to try to get one card to work right whether it's a massive deck or a small deck, but being cognizant of the tremendous effects that a single event can have in a card-driven game and having to balance for that, oh, that is not an enviable task.
2: Like I said, it might be an easy way to, to form a little bit of balance, but like you said, like if you change one rule, then you have to see how that affects almost every other card to see if there's some sort of, yes. You know... Well, really? it, highlight, it highlights the flexibility of a card-driven system because you don't have to hard-code it into the rules. You can just inject it into the card set later on. So, absolutely. All right. So, it's an easy way to inject small bits of theme into the game. Uh, Quartermaster General does this in spades. Like, like it puts you in the era, puts you in that war those particular cards are fantastic it gives you an actual point of history this is you know what you're doing this is you know how it happened it really you know puts you in the story and a lot of other games do that i can't come up with any off the top of my head but i'm sure
1: well let's look at some of the better tableau builders Right. Some of my favorite tableau builders are precisely my favorite because they kind of edge into this card driven games category. It's not just about the tableau. It's about the interaction that the tableau has with an overarching board state, whether it's Pax Renaissance or Pax Palmer, first or second edition. What you're able to do in the process of getting all these gameplay benefits and having these subtle interactions is you can cram in so much historical texture into this available universe. Now, sometimes it just feels like window dressing. Like, innovation, for all its credits, I don't really feel like innovation is a civilization game. And when I'm playing nuclear power, or I'm inventing the wheel, it doesn't feel like I'm doing anything remotely resembling that. Especially since, I should point out, You, Your civilization can have nuclear power and the wheel simultaneously as their greatest achievements in two areas of engineering. So, setting all that aside. But in the case of something like Pact Renaissance, where every card has this lovely little paragraph of flavor text talking about the historical context of blah, 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 whatever, it can help inform all these things. And... Often the line between a thematically compelling, coherent experience is precisely in having those extra little bits of detail. And so if your game is card-driven, you can offload that very easily. So you don't have to worry about someone reading, you know, designer's notes at the back of the rulebook just to get a sense of what's going on.
2: It's also a good way, there's these this new, the legacy game, the disp- disposable story games, the unlock games, all of these things. It's a nice, cheap way to make these cards disposable, right? Having these decks of cards it's a great way to you know introduce secrets or hidden things, you know decks that come out of nowhere type things, it's a great a great mechanism.
1: Well, it also lets in in the context of legacy games, letting things evolve by manipulating the deck can be tremendous, you know, thinking about Gloomhaven, when you level up and very early on, when you're starting out in Gloomhaven and you spend all this time to level up, it takes more than one session to level up. You think, oh, I just get one more card in the mix. That can be huge. Just having that one extra card available in your hand that you get to cycle through a couple times can be a very, very significant thing. And it can change the entire play style of how you're going to do a hero. And that's in just another example of how a subtle effect in the, 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 the card-driven systems can have massive repercussions later on down the line. And your better Legacy experiences do indeed manipulate the deck. What I would love to see, again, not a card-driven game, this is just purely a card game, but the Fast Forward series by Friedman Freeze has been doing some really interesting stuff playing with with Legacy. Fortress was amazing, and I've been meaning to, to try a lot more of his stuff. If he designed a more thoroughgoing... Solid strategy game that had a sort of deck driving the action, a lot of card driven game. I think that could be really something spectacular. Now, on the other hand, maybe the fast forward system can't, could not handle something of that complexity, and he's been very wide to keep it pared down. That's why Friedman Freeze gets the big bucks, and I just yell into a can. But. That's the kind of thing that I, I absolutely agree. Being card-driven allows you that kind of evolution in a very, very interesting yeah, why way. Why did you
2: say Fortress? Now I, I want to play it again. It has been so long. That was a fantastic game. Anyway, let's move on before I start to cry. <laughs> sometimes it means a whole bunch of lot more art assets. When you start putting these huge decks of cards in, sometimes you'll need art on each one. So it means a huge you know cost in art assets. I was thinking that in terms of Mage Knight.
1: Mage Knight, I think, is is a pretty good example of, of a card-driven game, and I really think that the art assets—we were complaining about this in the context of Edge of Darkness. You know, the art assets are so small, it helps rob a sense of feeling that you're doing anything in particular— in Mage Knight, it's very crunchy. You've got a lot of these details, but sometimes the picture is just evocative enough that it helps bring back in a little bit of what's going on. And it's a little touch and go. We've, we we commented that we don't think the thematic integration of Mage Knight is spectacular, but one of the reasons why it's good is because it leverages the card driven system by being able to play a little a little bit with the the art assets, and the art does give a little you know tableau of what you're doing when you're just generating you know five points of move and then two. points points of block and
2: seven points of attack in route I think Brute's sort of a card-driven game in a way in a way because there is that one deck of cards that ties all the players together in route everyone has all their own crazy unique abilities and when you have this one uh, central deck that everyone's drawing for it's sort of Shows everyone that they're still in the same game because sometimes you know in root you can feel as though everyone's playing their own game and nothing's tied in and and because everyone draws from the same deck it sort of lets you know pulls everyone back into playing the same game.
1: I agree with you that the cards and what actions and crafting and and sets that they unlock is part of the glue that keeps root together, but. I would point to the existence of the lizards. The lizards are almost, because I thought about this. The lizards almost play a card-driven game because every action they do has to correspond to a card, with the exception of the acolytes. They 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 power conspiracies with their acolytes that has nothing to do with cards whatsoever. And again, this is this is pedantic hair splitting, but if you're playing the cats, If you're playing the Otters, for example, many of your actions have nothing to do with being driven by cards. They're just from a menu of actions that you get to select or what have you. And so at times, I think Root feels like it's being card-driven, but overall, I just think it's one element among many. Not, again, that this distinction matters a whole lot. I agree that when Root is being card-driven, it exhibits a lot of those strengths. And I'm looking forward to, and I might even eat my words later on, when we get the new deck of cards, an entirely new deck of cards as part of the expansion, maybe it'll change the, the the feeling of the entire game to an extent that i will have to retract my, my current judgment. But,
2: you know, to me, it's not really a card-driven game. All right, I have one more core point and then a bunch of silly points.
1: So, Could we start with the silly points? No, I like those. we're doing one
2: more core thing. Oh, okay. Multiple ways to play. I thought of this other one, why I, why I didn't bring it up, because one of my favorite things. When you have a, a deck-driven uh, game, you can have graduated decks. You know, you can, you know, A, B, C, and D. Domain does this fantastically. It's a definitely a card-driven game, and you know we have a graduated deck. I wish more games would do this—you know, make it easy at the beginning and get more harder, or however you want it more difficult. However you want to talk about it, and just so you don't get like the you know the you know level ten demon on your first draw and the level one wolf in your last draw. This is one of the main reasons why I hate anything to do with Eldritch Horror. But that being said, another game that does it, another sort of way that works is that there's multiple ways to play like in First Class the train game there's like a b c d you know you get to pick different decks and it forms your main deck so it's a decent it's a cool way to make each game different cuz you can you know manipulate that deck in certain ways to give you themes on how to play
1: absolutely i sometimes look at whether the games are card driven or just more pure ta- tableau builders ones that don't really give enough depth or nuance or quality decision making the existing game could have just been the first deck either pared down or in its totality. And then later on after it was like, okay, this is how you do basic actions. This is how the basic card play works. You could then introduce a B deck, underneath so it's like okay about halfway through the game now we're getting to the real combos this is where the real game begins now that you've already familiarized yourself with that absolutely again one of the core virtues of a, of a card-driven game is it gives you so much flexibility about controlling these little elements of texture and tempo and arc that can really make a game experience come together all right the silly stuff
2: Stop putting the name of the game on backs of the cards. <laughs> <laughs> I am so tired of it. It's like, what, are, are, do we forget what we're playing? It's like, oh, I, I don't know what game we're playing. Oh, I'll just look at the back of the card. Oh, we're playing Shadow Rift. Okay, whoo! thank God, I, I almost forgot what I was playing. You gotta have branding.
1: Well, I mean, I if we're just going to complain about card graphic design generally, I wish more games would have rotational symmetry. On their card backs. I've been complaining about this f- ever since the Resistance came out. Because especially where the, the, the cards need to be secret. Especially where it matters who played what. I hate it when a card back is almost rotationally symmetric. But not quite. That's the worst. And I've seen some beautiful card backs. That's one of the things that I really like. Again, just somewhat off topic about uh, lots of other card games. That's one of the things about the Pandemic the limited series that were used to be limited but not anymore. Fall of Rome. Iberia. They have beautiful card backs. Gorgeous design. I remember this very bad, very sort of crude CCG called The Spoils. And beautiful card backs. There's something, there's something very, very nice about lovely card backs. Exactly. Pax
2: Palmer 2nd Edition also has very, very lovely card backs. Exactly. We don't need to have the name of the game on it's the back. It's true. Um... A good thing about card-driven games is that if there's certain things that are OP or really weird or really throws the game off, you can just take that card and yoink, Absolutely. out it goes, right? You can pull stuff out that you don't like. You can sort of tweak it to what you like. Some bad things about card-driven games is that you lead to deck-milling games like Dead of Winter or Police Precinct, which are arguably awful games.
1: Well, that's where <laughs> that's where you don't have enough editorial direction about what the deck is trying to get you to. And it also can lead to serious problems in terms of the game not having a conscious arc. It's just, well, we're going to throw a whole bunch of things into a deck and and something will come out of it. Just because card-driven games allow you to do good things with
2: this doesn't necessarily mean that it it doesn't prevent some game designers from being lazy with it. All right, that's all my silly points. And now I just have a huge list of games. Quartermaster General, we've already talked about uh, a bunch of it. Everyone has their own unique deck. It's one of these things where I talked about knowing what are other people's decks is a huge advantage. Knowing what you are going to get soon enough is a huge advantage. Knowing how many there's like certain number of build cards, certain number of attack cards. Knowing the composition of your deck is a is is a great part of that game.
1: I really like, and that's that's one of the strengths of some of your later card driven war games. The tension of having to play someone else's card. I recognize that Quartermaster General is fine, given that everyone has their own deck, and lots of other games, each player has their own deck, but one of the reasons, I think, why Twilight Struggle is as adored as it is is because of that agony of having to manage other people's cards in your hand and the consequences of dealing with that. So there are are a number of ways to
2: go about doing it, and each have their strengths and weaknesses, I think. All right, we already talked about the top five games. Blood Rage, arguably a card-driven game. Kingdom Death. I'm going to argue it that it's a card-driven game. What? Because when you get down to it, really the core mechanism is managing the monster, knowing when to attack, when to do anything, and it is a card-based system. Knowing uh, what attacks he has left, knowing that you have to get that deck down to nothing, knowing how to manipulate that, I think it's very close to being a card-driven game. Sure, but again... That part of the game, the combat part.
1: (sighs) Maybe I again to my mind there's a fundamental distinction between co-op games where there's a random deck of cards that drives the AI and absolutely that's that's what Kingdom Death Monster does with a little bit more sophistication than most. Granted, it seems strange to call Kingdom Death Monster sophisticated in any way, but the player's actions, whether it's in the showdown or it's in the hunt or it's in the settlement f- phase, have nothing to do with being driven by cards whatsoever. So 100%. I,
2: I just I. I meant just the combat part for sure. I
1: I think just the way the boss works, and that to me is not but quite te- enough.
2: I, I'd say technically
1: the combat,
2: the combat is the boss. Knowing how to to fight that particular boss is very.
1: You're also managing your equipment. You're deciding how to use that. You're deciding how to use the special skills that you're. That yeah, you're but pl- it's very like...
2: s- very specific to that boss. Okay, you're opinion. wrong. Keep going. All right. Well, how much time do you have left, fight? Because I love Grande oh, here, you- and I, you know I'm sure you're going to talk about an hour and a half on that. So I just thought. Okay. Well, here,
1: here. He, well, here's a good place to sum up. Then, Walker, well, I would no, just like to well, point I know, out
2: I, the Spirit Island. I mean, we got. You don't want to talk about Spirit Island as well. We talked about Mage Knights very, very quickly. Mechs versus minions. I'm
1: trying not to trigger you, Walker, because all all you do is complain about how much I talk about El Grande. But I'd like to point out that in the context (laughs) of this episode, you've spent roughly five times as much time talking about El Grande than I have. (laughs) And every time I bring up Spirit Island, you break out into hives. So, (laughs) yes, Spirit Island is absolutely a card-driven game. And the introduction of new toys and new action horizons is one of those ways in which Spirit Island really
2: employs its cards very, very well. Same thing with Mech Smith Minions is one of these things. Same thing with Star Wars Rebellion and Mage Knight, games in which you bring more cards into your personal deck Sort of like a you know in-house deck builder, fantastic mechanisms.
1: Like Concordia. Concordia is Concordia. also
2: pretty straightforwardly card-driven.
1: Everything you do is the cards. One of the things that I, I, I talk about when explaining the rules to Concordia, the actual rules to Concordia take about 30 seconds, and it's just, well, here's what the cards do, and that's that.
2: Yeah, it's, it's sort of, you can call it action selection because everyone has the same, you know, you can say it's a list of actions that you choose from, you know, it's in it, but, but the way that you... You choose more cards, and it's, it modifies those actions ever so slightly, and you get to add them into your hand. It's a it's a great a great way to do a card driven game. Absolutely. So that's going to do it for this week.
1: We have some important announcement, and we'd like you to pay very very careful attention. We've been considering how to maintain So Very Wrong About Games in a sustainable fashion because that's been one of our primary goals. That's one of the reasons why we went, we've gone into summer schedule twice, albeit in different ways. And we want to make sure that we can keep doing this in
2: a way that you appreciate it and in a way that that's not going to cause us to burn out. And the way that we feel though, that very useful and in the fact that I want to make sure we have pride in every episode that we do. Going forward, we're not going to be able to return to
1: our pre-summer schedule of every week doing a full topic and then doing an in-depth review of our feature game. Now, uh, I will point out, parenthetically, that some people have appreciated our shorter summer episodes, given that they routinely clock in at under an hour. I'm not going to pretend, though, that this is primarily driven by listener feedback. This is primarily driven by our desire to keep this sustainable. So we can keep doing this week after week with pride and integrity. And unfortunately, we can't review a game in in depth every week. That's the long and the short of it, basically. We would either have to compromise in terms of how much depth we would be able to go into, or we'd have to start reviewing games after not playing them enough. And we are not willing to do either of those things. So the summer schedule is no more. It is the normal schedule. We are going to be continuing what we've been doing over the past couple summer months, namely... Every odd week, we'll have an Eurus and a feature topic, and then on the other weeks, we're going to have a feature game and go in-depth with that. Now, I just want to stress, if this means that you want to stop listening, that's fine. Of course, that's your prerogative. If you want to reconsider your Patreon support, we also completely support that as well. But we just wanted to flag this up front, and so you knew what to expect from us coming forward and why we were doing it this way. 100%. With that in mind, thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, just rolled a dice at gmail.com. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace!